0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. We talk about regulatory compliance quite a bit on the Global Medical Device Podcast. wanted to take this opportunity to to share with you another perspective that might be equally, maybe even more important, and that's product liability. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the host, founder, and VP of quality and regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. I'm going to confess right away, I am cold, folks. It is winter. I can look outside. I can see snow. It has been bone-chilling cold. And our guest on today's podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences has reminded me that where he is, there's nothing that he needs to scrape off his window in the morning. Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast.
1: Well, thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. And in terms of the weather, to quote a famous politician, I feel your pain. I had cold and snow for my entire life up until very recently, having relocated now to Southern California, where we don't have that particular problem. We have other problems, but not that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, you and I have talked a lot in the past about, you know, both tidbits on podcasts, webinars, but but also just in our uh, frequent conversations about regulatory and how companies sometimes will fear FDA or regulatory bodies. And I'm, I'll paraphrase you a bit, but I know that you usually chuckle when we talk about this topic because you're like, you know, companies shouldn't, shouldn't fear FDA. Can you remind folks who maybe they should fear and, and your uh, statement around this topic of, of regulatory versus product liability?
1: Sure, John. I think that's a great place to start our conversation today. So you're exactly right. Many of my medical device friends, they often tell me that they fear the FDA. And I say, no, 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 no. You should have a healthy respect. For the FDA. As we've talked about before, John, as I like to say, a physician can kill patients one at a time, but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. So without a doubt, FDA has a very, very important job to do. So we should as an industry and as professionals have a healthy respect for the FDA, but we should not fear them. So who should we fear? Well, we should fear the product liability attorneys. Because the product liability attorneys can impose a heck of a lot more damage to a company than the FDA ever could. And I know from firsthand experience, John, working on both sides of this fence, that product liability attorneys are a heck of a lot better at finding documentation than FDA ever will be. So have a respect for the FDA, absolutely. But we should not fear them. We should fear the product liability attorneys.
0: Yeah, and I read some stories recently, uh, and I'll we'll leave the uh, specific details of the company and the products out for, for the time being. And, and folks, you can find this. this. This is information that's readily available. I actually have some different Google Alerts that I have set up on my own. So, you know, it's, this comes to my inbox fairly often. And there's been a lot of, of recent documentaries, there have been recent websites, patient advocacy groups, and that are kind of focusing on what happens when products go bad, and there's this one case that that I w- when I was reading, and it, it was talking about basically it was pulling in the the argument about regulatory clearance and specifically five ten k clearance, and uh, you know how that relates to product liability, and and I would say you know the the argument was that five ten k clearance doesn't doesn't really hold any water when it comes to product liability. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Mike?
1: Yes, absolutely. So as, as we've talked about a little bit in the past, John, I have a, a small but growing amount of my business working as a, as an expert witness in medical device product liability lawsuits. And one of the things that I like about working with my attorney friends is that they do not limit me to what FDA may or may not require for a 510K or de novo or PMA or what have you. As I've said many times, when a company gets a 510K clearance, when they have a de novo that's granted, when they have a PMA that's approved, when they get a CE mark, when they get an ISO blah, blah, blah certification, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. That does not mean that you're making a safe and effective product. It doesn't mean that you're making a good product. It just simply means that you're passing. And when it comes to product liability, that's not always good enough. What my attorney friends want me to say is as a professional biomedical engineer, Did the company do what they should have done, whether it was required by the FDA or not? So it's interesting, John, in our field, I hear a lot of people, they say their goal is regulatory compliance or quality compliance. Well, compliance just means that we're passing. You know, that's not a very high place to set the bar. I think that we as an industry can probably do better than that. What do you think, John?
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, there's this probably this uh, intersection where or at least relationship between what we're doing during the design and development process that you know eventually getting that that regulatory clearance or, or approval or whatever the case may be depending on our product classification obviously that's the permission for us to to be able to sell into the market but all the things that we're doing in design and development are important not just to get that clearance or that permission. Uh, but we should also, to your point, be cognizant of how is this product going to be used. And I think there is a, there is a certainly a relationship between what we do during design and development, risk management, and those sorts of things that that need to be an important thing that we consider uh, during the design and development. And, and then you know as we make changes to that product, we need to factor this thing in. I mean, so what are some key things that we should be thinking of from a from a risk perspective when when we're designing and developing a product, not only for that market clearance, that regulatory clearance, but what should we be considering from a product liability standpoint? Should we be thinking about that when we're designing products?
1: I think we really should, John. And let's start out with a very high-level recommendation. Look, simply put, if we as individuals, as professionals, feel comfortable recommending whatever product that we're working on for a family member, for a friend, perhaps even ourselves then I have absolutely no problem taking it to the FDA. And if necessary, I have absolutely no problem defending it if if something bad happens and we get sued. So that's where we should start, as opposed to, as you and I have talked about before, John, this tick box mentality where you're just simply you know, following regulation like a computer executing lines of code. So that's probably at a high level, but maybe we can make this a little bit more specific, a little bit more actionable for our audience. John, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that would be important. And one thing that comes to mind as, as you mentioned that is the slippery slope of, uh, when I assess risk of my product, what is the scope of that risk? Do I, do I consider off label use? Do I consider misuse? What are the benefits of doing so? What are the, the drawbacks of doing so? I'm sure you have some thoughts on that.
1: I have. Many thoughts on that, John, as you and I have uh, talked about in you know in past conversations, so specifically when it comes to labeling uh, from a regulatory and even from a quality perspective, you know we're responsible to make sure that our device functions normally it's safe and effective uh, when it's used according to the label. but I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday, John, and I don't think you did either. We know for a fact that once our products leave our door whether people use the product the way we intend it to be used, i.e. on label or off, is totally beyond our control. So the question for us, John, as uh, engineers, as regulators, as medical device professionals, do we want to live in that theoretical world where people just use our products the way that they're intended, i.e. that the way they're labeled, or do we live in the real world where people are going to use those products? And let's bring this back to product liability, John. Um, a lot of people think that if a pro, if a device, for example, is used off label and something bad happens to the patient, that the company cannot get sued. So let me use one of my not-so-hypothetical stories to illustrate, John. Imagine, and I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here, if that's okay. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, sure. Listen carefully. Okay. So imagine somebody is using your medical device off-label, and the, the patient is injured, and you as a manufacturer get sued. Can you, as the manufacturer, be held liable for a bad thing that happens to a patient even from your device even though it was caused by an off-label use of your device. Do you understand the scenario, John? And then what would be okay. your answer?
0: Yeah, let me let me restate what I think I heard you say to make sure I understand. So I design a device for indication XYZ. And once somebody, a doctor, physician, whomever, somebody buys my product they don't use it for indication XYZ. They use it for a different indication ABC, one that I didn't plan or anticipate. But, but anyway, they use this product for, for indication ABC, not XYZ. And when doing so, patient who uh, is the recipient of my product uh, in this procedure for ABC, they get injured in some way, shape, or form. So your question is, can I be held liable as the manufacturer of the product, even though I had no intention of that product being used for the way that it was being used? That's the question, right? Exactly correct. All right. It feels like a trick question, but I'm going to go with, yes, I can be held liable because it was my product.
1: Well, you're right, John. The short answer is yes, the manufacturer can be held liable um, if, and there's an important caveat here, if the opposing counsel can show that you knew or should have known or, as my attorney friends like to say, were thinking about the fact that this particular product could be used off-label in other words if the opposing counsel can demonstrate that you knew or should have known that the product could be used in this off-label way regardless of the fact that it's not on the FDA cleared or approved for approved label it doesn't matter you can be held liable now the question is uh, and I don't want to turn this too much of into a legal discussion, John, but it is important for engineers and regulatory folks to at least understand the basics here. How does the opposing counsel show this? Well, I've been involved in many medical device lawsuits where we did exactly this. If we can show that it's the standard of care, in other words, that it's what we teach in medical school, even though it's not on your label, then you knew or should have known. If we can show That there are, for example, uh, anecdotal reports or case reports in the literature of this particular device or this type of device being used in this way, even though it's off-label, you knew or should have known. If we can show that this particular device or perhaps a predicate device, if this is a 510K, is used this way in the EU or some other part of the world, then once again, we can show that you knew or should have known. Um, and when it comes to thinking about, that's an interesting one as well. This gets into uh, the quality requirements for risk management plans. Yeah. I was in a in a meeting once where we were doing a risk brainstorming session and we were ticking off all the risks associated with this particular new medical device on-label uh, risks. And then the topic of off-label risk came up and immediately the, the, the ranking person in the room who happened to be a senior VP, this was a very large uh, Fortune 50 medical device company, John, he said, this meeting is over, don't let the door hit you and then you know what on the way out. And the reason is Is because if you anticipate risks associated with the off-label use of a product and you don't mitigate them sufficiently, and then, you know, a few months or a few years later, somebody is harmed because of the off-label use, uh, you identified that risk. And God forbid, John, if you include that in your mini notes, that is the kiss, the kiss of death. Because now I can easily show, well, back in you know such and such a day, the company had this risk brainstorming session. They identified this risk associated with off-label use, and they did not mitigate it enough. So bottom line, very, very simply put to my many engineering and regulatory friends that are in our audience – Simply because you do not list a particular use of your device on your FDA cleared or approved label doesn't necessarily insulate you from product liability. I think there's a very important lesson to be learned there from that long story, John. Would you agree? Yeah.
0: I, I mean, it's it, yes, I do. And I'm conflicted a bit because... You know, it's. I think we are conditioned or somewhat taught to. You know, most people listening will be able to finish this mantra before I actually say the words. But if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Uh, which maybe is the point of of this executive. Uh, you know, th- be careful what you document. And I I know that uh, you have a, a quote uh, about that uh, that we'll get to here in a moment. But but as an, a product development engineer. Uh, I'm a bit conflicted because you know I I want to do, do you know my proper due diligence. I want to document. I want to think about these sorts of things. But but the moment that I do uh, now means that I thought about it, or I did more than thought about it. I actually put it down on paper and I presented it as a plausible way that this product can be used off label or misused and that sort of thing. So what can I practically do? You, any advice or tips to to folks? what should they be documenting on these types of things
1: well first of all john kudos
0: to you because i certainly
1: hear the the concern in your voice there is a bit of a paradox here you are a you know a very diligent very responsible a quality professional and as a quality professional obviously documentation is important What I'm simply suggesting to you and and as well as to our audience is, obviously, from a regulatory and a quality perspective, documentation is important. But from a product liability perspective, it can be the kiss of death. You know, there's a famous quote that you mentioned a moment ago, never talk when you can nod, never nod when you can wink, and never, ever write an email because it's the kiss of death. You're giving the prosecution all the evidence that we need. So this is why I often facetiously, but also seriously say to people, document everything. And then as soon as you do, shred everything. Now, please don't take my words literally here. You know, I'm trying to just simply point out that there's a balance. We have to be very careful on one hand, what we need to document from a regulatory or a quality perspective. But on the other hand, just keep in mind that if there is a problem down the road, one of the first things that the opposing counsel is going to look at is your documentation. And one of the first things that I ask for is all of the letter to file and related documentation um, because that information, as you know, John, does not go to the FDA. And let's talk about documentation for just one, you know, just a tiny bit more because I hear so many people in the regulatory and yeah. the quality world, you know, they say, like you just did, documentation is important. Well, to me, that's a statement of the obvious. The question is, what do you document and what do you not? So many times a company will call me when they're having a problem. They ask me to help them get out of their problem, which I'm happy to do. And one of the very first things they say to me is, we're going to send you all this documentation. And I said, well, you're, I'm, you know, you're, you're welcome to do that. I'm happy to review it. After all, you are paying me by the hour. However, pretty much right away, I can tell you that that documentation is not going to do me any good. Why? Because you've documented what you did, and I already know what you did. That's why you're having problems. What I want to know is what you didn't do and why you didn't do it, what you considered doing and what you didn't do and so on. So in other words, most people, when it comes to documentation, they document what they did. But how many people, in your experience, John, document what they don't do and why they didn't do it? Perhaps there are a few, but I don't think there are many
0: yeah i I would say that you could probably count it on one hand, maybe one finger at least in my experience you know it 's an important point you know so keeping kind of with the theme and i i 've got 'm I'm, I'm leading us to to a point here in a moment, but i want to highlight another story again i 'm going to leave the name of the the company out of this particular example, but there was a story I read recently uh, on a med device industry publication. And it was talking about or sharing this story about this company. And they had learned about their device being involved in an adverse event. I don't remember the exact dates, but go with me here for a moment. It was like August of one year. They learned about this this device and it was burning a patient during an MRI or something like that. And then like a month or two later, they learned of another event. And they reportedly investigated the issue and dealt with it. But it was like, they didn't report these adverse events to the FDA until like nine months later. And I'm like, when I'm reading this, I'm like, holy cow, you know, you want to talk about, you know, number one, this is a a case where, to me, there was regulatory issues with what this company did. But there's also huge product liability issues with what this company did. I I don't know if you're familiar with that story, Mike, but do you understand the scenario? and, And can you comment on that?
1: Yeah, sure. So again, without getting into too many specifics, I was not involved with that particular company, but I was asked to review that particular case after the fact and I have been reported in a couple of the press publications about it. So I am somewhat familiar with the case. Bottom line, you're right, there was a a pretty extensive delay, almost a year, between the time that the company first started becoming aware of problems and when this information was reported to the FDA. Now to be clear, actually, the company was aware or should have been aware of the potential of these problems long before the first problem was indicated. Because in my opinion, this particular type of um, adverse event was definitely foreseeable and should have been part of their risk mitigation strategy back uh, even before the product was on the market as part of the development process.
0: Yeah. Um, and let me let me just interject. This, this is one of those things where you would expect a company to have documented that scenario because it's very foreseeable because it was used exactly as it was expected.
1: That's correct. And maybe, you know, again, to be fair, as I said, John, I'm not involved personally with this particular case. So I have only access to information that, was, that is publicly available. Their risk mitigation strategy, at least a complete one, is obviously not publicly available. So maybe the company was aware of this. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But in any event, what we're focusing on here is when the company did finally find out that these problems were occurring, there was a very long delay in reporting it to the FDA. Now, obviously, that's problematic from a from a regulatory or a quality side. This is a 510K product. This is not a PMA. In the PMA world, as you know, John, the the requirements are a little bit more rigorous, although regrettably, as you and I have talked about before, they're not always enforced. But in the 510k world, the post-market reporting requirements, even for significant adverse events, are not really that rigorous, let's put it that way. And so from a product liability perspective, what are the consequences here? Well, I'm not an attorney, John, nor do I play one on TV. But to me, if, you know, it should not take a JD from Harvard Law School after somebody's name to be able to make a pretty strong case that if the company did not report this information to the FDA for nearly a year, you know, in the eyes of the jury, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. So once again, it's another example, regrettably, of When you follow the regulation, you're just being a a C student. You know, I think we have an obligation to report problems, especially if they're serious problems, sooner rather than later. And by the way, I have no problem, John, with what I would call FYI reporting or partial reporting. In other words, and we do do this in the drug world, but not so much at the device world. We make FDA and not just FDA, but we make our customers, our surgeons or physicians, whoever the users are aware that there is, there are some reports of a potential problem. We don't know exactly why the problem is being caused yet. And we don't know yet any specific advice to give you to minimize or avoid having this problem. But this, what we want to let you know, a that we are having some reports of this problem, and b the problem is under investigation. And when we do have more definitive information, we will definitely come back and share share it with you. Whether that's required from a regulatory or a quality perspective, John. Personally, I think it's common sense. I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, what do you think, John?
0: You know, I think it's just the best practice. I mean, I and I have unfortunately been involved in my career where we learned about an adverse event. And we took the uh, the stance where, you know, the moment that we learned about it, we tried to gather as much intel and information as we possibly could. Uh, of course, you know, when you know about an adverse event from a regulatory compliance perspective, the, the time is ticking If if it was involved in serious injury or death or had the potential to cause serious injury or death. And so we we um we wanted to report that you know, as soon as we possibly could with as much and complete information as we possibly could and uh, unfortunately we didn 't have the investigation complete upon our initial report, and we felt that was okay. We felt that was the right move to make because we wanted to inform the agency we wanted to inform you know our user base of these challenges. And let them know exactly what you just suggested. Hey, we're aware of this. We were investigating this. This is our top priority, and it really was our top priority. And the moment that we uh, concluded the investigation and we had more data, more information, mm-hmm. we made an addendum to our regulatory report uh, to to the agency. Uh, we uh, updated our customer base. To me, that felt like the right thing to do because you know it felt like my responsibility as a medical device professional. Uh, to, to say, yes, we're aware of this, and yes, we're doing something about it, and that and just, just felt like the right thing to do. I, I think that's a best practice.
1: Well, I agree with you strongly, John, that it is a best practice. No question about that. The question is, would we consider it an industry standard? Regrettably, I would have to say probably not, because to me, industry standard means that most people would do this. And in my experience, and I think you said also in your experience, John, most companies don't do this. So for the benefit of our audience, to keep this fairly simple, the question comes down to really one thing. Do we want to be proactive or do we want to be reactive? You know, uh, in most situations, I would prefer to be proactive. I would prefer to get out there ahead of the story and uh, as the politicians like to do, control the spin, so to speak, at least as much as they can, as opposed to being reactive and then having to do damage control later on and having to answer questions of what did you know and when did you know it. But again, John, that's my personal preference. Unfortunately, there is no regulatory requirement. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's any quality requirement that says we have to be proactive as opposed to
0: reactive. There's not. And, you know, not to get too deep in the weeds on, on quality practices and 43 observations and warning letters and things of that nature. But year after year after year, the one of the biggest, oftentimes the top reason why companies get inspectional observations from FDA and, and challenges during ISO audits has to do with companies being reactive, uh, you know, correcting issues rather than being proactive and, and preventing issues. Uh, but again, that's a whole different topic for a whole different conversation.
1: And what's the old adage, John? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or something like
0: that. It's something like that, yeah, yeah. And, and so, folks, I think this is a this is an important aspect of though what you should be uh, putting in place from a quality management system. I want you to look at a QMS as more than just uh, satisfying compliance and checking a box to to show that you meet different different regulations or regulatory requirements for your QMS. I want you to think about it being uh, more of a true quality professional building processes that are have uh, leading indicators, if you will to help you uh, identify and track and trend opportunities for improvement before they become big deals. This will help you from a, a product liability standpoint as well being more proactive uh, so you know designing your quality management system in a way that allows you to do that and adopting this true quality culture will be helpful and of course You know, you can go to www.greenlight.guru. We're happy to help you with that particular challenge. Uh, We are an EQMS software platform that's designed specifically for the medical device industry by medical device professionals. We're very uh, cognizant of and hopeful that you'll adopt a proactive mindset and to this true quality culture. Let's get back to kind of a, a topic to kind of wrap up today's conversation. You know, we've talked about you know when to document a little bit. We've talked about what not to document a little bit. But is there something that we should be doing from a product design standpoint? Is it, you know if if we can, should we be designing features or attributes or fail safes? Are there things that we can do a better job of as medical device professionals with our products, anticipating how it's going to be used, but also anticipating how it might be misused or off-label used?
1: Well, first of all, John, I could not agree with you more what you said a moment ago on the quality side. And I would say exactly the same thing on the regulatory side. Our goal should not be just simply to tick off boxes on a form, as you mentioned, but to try to do what we can to prevent problems down the road, whether they are problems with the FDA or problems with potential product liability, it really doesn't matter. Um, as I said a moment ago, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And just because you meet the regulatory requirements or the quality requirements doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing all that you can to minimize the chances of having problems later. So that's something that we should all at least think about, if not act on uh, as much as possible
0: and i'm sorry john <laughs> well oh, that's okay the is there something that we can do like for example when we're designing a device uh you know we may not to your earlier point we may not document all of the ways that the product can be used incorrectly or off label or misused we may not document all the things that we chose not to do uh, for Hopefully, uh, reasons that are better understandable after we've talked, you and I have talked a little bit today, but is there something that I can do, for example, as a product development engineer when designing my product to factor these scenarios in during that process? Yeah, it's a great
1: question, John, and thank you for reminding me. I guess I, my, my, I'm getting a little old. I, I forgot temporarily. Look, this is a very difficult question. This is not a simple question, and it is to a large degree paradoxical. So here's my, my best and my simplest advice. Yes, we can make sure that we can design our devices so that they work according to the label. But we should not be so naive as to think that that's the only way that they're going to be used. And so we should, as designers and engineers, work closely, work hand-in-hand with our regulatory folks to do what we can to design our devices to be used in what are today potentially off-label ways, and then... One of the ways that we can sell this to our regulatory professional, and as you know, John, I work as a regulatory strategy consultant, is you can say to them, we're gonna bring our device onto the market with this narrow indication first, but as soon as we get onto the market, then we're going to go back to the FDA with a label expansion and and add that off-label use to it. And oh, by the way, from an engineering perspective, we won't have to do anything more because we've already designed it so that we make sure that it works that way. In some cases, maybe we've even already done the testing to ensure that it does that way. So, Every single week, almost every single day, John, I give advice to companies all the time that as an engineer, it pains me to give them, but as a, but as a regulatory professional, it's the least burdensome approach. Go to the FDA with your new device with a narrow label first because, let's be honest, it's just simpler, it's faster, it's it's cheaper, it's less risky to do that, but then be willing to go back to the FDA a little bit further down the road with a label expansion. And this is one of many, many reasons why I think it's so critical for regulatory and engineering to work together hand in hand, literally from the beginning of the project. One of my many frustrations, John, with so many companies in the medical device world is that they do not bring regulatory into the process until very, very late in the product development cycle, in some cases um, close to or even at the point of design freeze. And as you know, John, if the device is already frozen in design to make changes at that particular time is very time consuming and expensive. Yeah. So simply put, you know, one of the questions people ask me all the time is how early should we bring regulatory into the product development process? Well, my short answer is it's never too early enough because for myself, not just as a regulatory professional, but as a professional biomedical engineer, I can I can offer so many suggestions, so much advice, so many different options in the design of the product, not just to optimize their regulatory strategy, but to mitigate their product liability uh, down the road. Once again, John, and I don't want to overly use this metaphor, but it is an appropriate one. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Changes that we make early in the design process are much easier and, and faster and cheaper to implement than changes further down the road. Would you agree?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's this, um, I, I can't remember the, the name behind it, but there is this, this um, notion, it's 110-100. You know, if, if you catch an issue or an opportunity Earlier, you know, it can cost you a dollar. A little bit later, it can cost you ten dollars. A little bit later, a hundred dollars. So it's an exponential cost. So the, the later that you address an issue, it's going to be more expensive, quite frankly. And if you wait till the design freeze to engage your regulatory folks, and and those regulatory folks identify different scenarios, or hey, what about this? What about that? and you have to go back and redo something it's going to be much more expensive than than if you were to engage those resources at the beginning so uh definitely uh good advice for folks out there be sure to engage your regulatory team early and often from the beginning throughout the entire design and development process it's just important not only from the regulatory standpoint but but uh, also from from a long-term big picture standpoint and so
1: my. I could not agree more, John. And I, I would offer just one last yeah, quick sure. piece of advice before we wrap this up. Oftentimes, and I think you and I have talked about this before, John. Oftentimes, if we're you know an R and D engineer or a regulatory or a quality professional, and for whatever reasons we're we think that doing what the regulation requires is not enough, and we should do more, that as everybody in our audience can can uh, uh, appreciate, that's not an easy thing to sell in your company. How do you convince your senior management to spend the time and the money to do more than what is required? So in those situations, and I don't like to play this part unless I absolutely have to, John, but if I'm in a situation where, as a professional biomedical engineer, I think that what the regulation requires for our particular device is not enough, what I will often do is say to the company, look, you're exactly right. From a regulatory perspective, you're not required to do this. Your competitors probably have not done it. FDA is not asking you to do it. So from a regulatory perspective, you definitely don't have to do it. However, if and when there's a problem down the road, when it comes to product liability, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. So again, I don't like to have to play that card, but I will play it if I have to. At the end of the day, John, we want to make sure that our devices are safe and effective. And believe me, those words are very easy to say, but what do they really mean? So that's, the, I think, the last piece of advice that I would offer uh, for our audience on this particular topic.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. And and once again, folks, I've been talking with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences. And you know, if if you want to wait to to the bad stuff happens and call Mike, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, he he does this work for a living. Uh, but I, I think, Mike, you'll agree that you'd prefer to engage a company before the problem happens, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, so Absolutely. Mike is...
1: and As a matter of fact, and I guess in a sense, I'm trying to put myself out of business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but, you know, in all seriousness, folks, Mike is the best when it comes to regulatory strategy. And, you know, regulatory strategy has, in my opinion, a lot more weight when you uh, deploy that early uh, in your process you know before you go to market rather than after the fact uh again mike can help you on on either side of that equation but uh my advice to you is to engage him earlier on rather than uh, after the problems start to happen uh that's my my plug for mike drews and vascular sciences I, I, and i'm serious he is he is one of the best uh, out there on, on this topic so uh do reach out to him and of course Thanks, john that's very kind of you to say oh you 're welcome, uh, and of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know quality management system is important, and you know for a medical device professional doing the right things uh, and documenting the right things th- those yes, there are uh, cases and points in time when when documentation is absolutely an asset and a friend uh, for you and knowing what to do and when to do it. Uh, that's a big thing that we do at Greenlight Guru is to help companies with that. So go to www.greenlight.guru, learn more about the Greenlight Guru EQMS, award-winning medical device software platform to help you manage all things QMS related. And this has been your host, the founder and VP of quality and regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.